This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by David Garcia, Democratic candidate for governor of Arizona. Glad to have you on, David. Jordan, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Now, for starters, could you tell us about your background and what pushed you to jump into this race? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm running for governor of Arizona. And yeah, I'm Arizona's story. I'm born and raised here in Arizona. I'm a fourth generation Arizonan, um, which is uh, important. Our, my family was here uh, for the extent that we can tell before the before the borders. The border kind of crossed to us. Um, and for me, I'm the first in my family to go to college. And I mention that because I know we have so many young people in Arizona who are using and working and, and, and uh, relying on education to help them do what I did, you know, and that's get a chance to help yourself and your family. Uh, my path was through the military. I joined the Army when I was 17. It was a life-changing experience for me. I came home again. I went to Arizona State undergrad. And then I had the real privilege of going to the University of Chicago for graduate school. Um, at that point, my wife and I uh, could have gone anywhere and contributed, but we came home again to build. And it's because when you are the first, and we're both the first in our families to do uh, something like that and get a chance to get an education, you, it's hard to take that capital away from the communities that built you. And so we came back to do just that, build here in Arizona. And I have uh, spent my entire career in public education. It's one of those areas where I just believe that the things you love, you don't find them, they find you. And um, I have long been committed to the idea of public education, its role in changing people's lives. And so for the last 12 years, I've been a professor at Arizona State in the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College, uh, teaching teachers um, and teaching ed policy, statistics courses, helping students really get to the highest levels of education. And I loved it. I love working with students. Um, we work with interested young folks who are interesting and interested and they work hard and they by and large do it for pizza, which is, uh, which is, which is pretty great. Um, but they are, yeah, they're wonderful to work with. But in 2014, um, I was sick and tired of watching what was happening in Arizona in public education. And I ran for office then, came within a half percent of winning and it's because I knew our legislature had a plan, and that plan was to cut public education to the bone, uh, criticize it for not improving, and then turn to privatization. And I know from my own work in uh, looking at this issue across the world, as soon as we do that, then we will have a society of haves and have-nots immediately. Um, and my story, the story of using public schools as the great equalizer, will no longer be our Arizona story or our American story. And so in 2018, when our uh, Governor Ducey signed a voucher bill, pardon me, 2016, I knew that the fight was at the governor's office. And so stepped in to run for governor of Arizona. And the big issue, uh, the one area we've got to focus on more than anything in Arizona is investing in public schools again. 
So looking at what's happened earlier this year, Arizona is one of the many states in the nation where we saw major teacher strikes. Could you tell us about what motivated them? It was quite a sight. I don't know if uh, your listeners have seen it, but I'll tell you what, it was a it was a wonderful, beautiful sight for me to see all the way down our downtown Phoenix, a sea of red uh, last April as our teachers walked out for six days. And they walked out because of that pattern I told you of cutting public schools and criticizing them for not improving has been going on in Arizona for a for two decades. And as somebody who's worked at the legislature, as somebody who's been in policy, I've long believed that it wasn't going to change until teachers took it into their own hands. But what I heard often was, well, you know, my job's to be in the classroom, I'm not political. And I find out, found, always found that to be ironic because even though teachers may not see their jobs as political, the rest of the politicians in the legislature surely does. And so when 50,000 plus teachers walked out, uh, I knew then we were going to see some change in Arizona. And they walked out because we have been cutting that deep in our state because our teachers are some of the lowest paid in the country. And they walked out because I believe they felt like they were not being treated as professionals any longer. Um, they went down to the legislature and witnessed how policy is made, and most of them came back appalled. They came back appalled at how disrespectful many of their elected officials were. And not only did they come away with an understanding that we need to take it into our own hands as a public to bring new revenue into education, but many of them came away with a clear understanding that the only way to impact long-term change is to change leadership as well. So those teachers have left the mall, they went back to their classrooms, and now they are a, an important, uh, visible political force, so many of them behind our campaign. And I'm really proud as an educator to have the backing of our education association uh, because they are going to change the state uh, going forward. They're going to be very, very important as we look to really build a brand new Arizona. So could you tell us more about what you'd like to do as governor to support them? What is your platform for education? So one of the things in education is you'll hear educators talk about the, the changing role of the educator and how it isn't, as the uh, educators say, it isn't about a sage on the stage as anymore, as much as it is with the edu what, uh, in education they call a guide on the side. And that is not somebody standing up telling students, or in this case, telling teachers which direction they should go, but standing on the side and helping and empowering them as they make their own decisions. And I see this movement and my role in it exactly like that. Our teachers are the ones that put themselves on the line to walk out. I have been behind them from day one. They made, by the way, a number of just fantastic strategic decisions to keep public opinion on their side as, uh, as they stayed out of, the, out, out, of our, out of classes for six days. And as part of that, they decided that the direction for this state is to uh, take an initiative to the ballot, an initiative that would bring in 700, almost $700 million of dedicated revenue to public education. It's a great idea, and it's one that I support, and I have supported from day one. In fact, our campaign team was out in the Arizona heat gathering signatures alongside teachers to make sure that it got on the ballot. And so for my platform, it is respecting teachers to make sure 
that invest in ed is going to uh, improve our schools, bring in much needed resources, because first and foremost, we need to invest and fully invest in public education here in Arizona. But it's beyond that. It means we also need to treat teachers as professionals. And there are three parts to that, in my opinion. Number one, we need to fund teachers at a professional level. And in my opinion, teaching is not a profession until you can raise a family and stay in the classroom. And that is my benchmark uh, to continue to invest in public schools so that our teachers are able to do that. But second, we've got to get away from a real fascination in Arizona and beyond, by the way, with standardized testing. Um, I believe that the next region, the next state, the next country that gets away from our overly standardized approach to education and has students focusing again on real-world outcomes is going to be a leader. It's going to be a leader in social thought. It's going to be a leader in, in the economy um, because it is a focus on real-world problems and taking every tool you have available to solving them that not only is exciting education, but I believe are ex those are exactly the skills our students need in the future. And then last, uh, an important one as well, is teachers need to be in a position to make decisions about their own profession. And as governor, I am committed to having teachers at the table first to develop education policy so that uh, when ideas are reach the classroom, they are ideas that are going to make sense and that are going to improve, improve teaching and learning across the state. So you mentioned vouchers earlier. I'd like to dig deeper into that. According to the Center for Educational Reform, which is a pro-charter organization, Arizona is the state with the fewest regulations and restrictions for charter schools in the country. The lack of transparency in this system has made it difficult to hold charters accountable for routinely filing inaccurate and misleading financial reports. How as governor would you work to end the misappropriation of public funding by private operators, and do you believe that for-profit charter schools should exist? That is a great question, and let's take it in turn, because um, it, 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 it is conflating a couple things that I think the public needs to understand. Let's start with vouchers. Vouchers go to private schools, and that's very important. Um, when, a, when Arizona passed the voucher law, it was allowing money to exit the public school system entirely. And that public school system includes both traditional public schools and charter schools. So vouchers are dollars going directly to private schools, many of those religious schools. And I stand squarely against that, uh, against that policy and squarely against the idea that we need private, private actors in a market to improve public education. And I stand against that for a couple reasons. It is that market-based approach where you bring in private actors, where private companies to provide education, where we are going to see inequities. And I'm not, I am not going to stand for those inequities, and we shouldn't as a country, because we have this rather um, audacious goal of having equitable education for all students, and vouchers do not get us there. Likewise, um, I stand against vouchers and the private dollars, public dollars going to private schools because as governor, um, my commitment is going to be to create amazing public schools, and I believe every available dollar needs to go toward that end. Now, charter schools are public schools in Arizona and they are part of the public school system. 
but you're talking about a couple different kinds of charter schools here in Arizona. Um, one, charter schools have flourished in Arizona, just as you mentioned, because we have a very unregulated environment and folks have come to Arizona to start schools and sometimes close them rather quickly because we have some profit motives that are in our state policies that, in my opinion, need to change. But in the charter school world, there's a couple different kinds of charter schools. There are non-for-profit, community-based charter schools. Some of them run by organizations that are doing very good work in communities and social services in those areas. Like in academics, we call those mom-and-pop charter schools. You know, that's where charter schools first started, was sort of your mom-and-pop charter school, people that wanted to... Uh, wanted to carry out a brand new vision for education. Um, but the problem is, along the way, the profit motive got in the way. And now, more and more charter schools, a growing number of them, are tied to for-profit institutions or management organizations. And it's more of a franchise model. And in my opinion, part of the challenges that you're seeing in Arizona is because we continue to have that profit motive um, for people to open charter schools. And we need to stop that. We need to stop that profit motive so that those who are invested in, uh, in working in public schools in Arizona are working for students and communities first. And so in my mind, it's a balance. And it is we need a more transparency and accountability for charter schools. There's a, there are some basic fundamental questions about the use of private dollars that we do not know the answers to. We've got to get those answers so that we know who the bad actors are, root them out, and make sure um, we prevent them from carrying on what sometimes from the public's perspective are certainly shady dealings uh, with respect to how they are acquiring dollars and acquiring capital and the money being made on the charter school side. But likewise, uh, we need more flexibility and innovation for our traditional public schools, that the answer isn't just over-regulating everybody. Our traditional public schools need the opportunity to enjoy some of the innovative opportunities that our charter schools have. And I'll give you a concrete example. There's a Phoenix Union High School District, which is a traditional public school district in central Phoenix, right along Central Avenue, the heart of downtown Phoenix, opened up a coding academy, as in computer coding. It's about 400 students. Its focus is on students leaving with a diploma, but also a, a, a industry certificate in coding. That is a great innovative option. And I'd like to see our traditional public schools have more and more of those opportunities available to them. So to me, it is about finding a middle ground and one set of rules for all schools we call public in Arizona. So a big concern millennials have right now is affordable higher education. As we saw in 2016, the proposal to make public college tuition free was a huge political mobilizer. Since then, we have seen proposals that go even further. Earlier this year, Senator Brian Schatz introduced a plan for debt-free higher education, which also factors in the high cost of books, housing, and food. Would you favor implementing a similar plan for your state? You know, it, not only would I favor it, it is going to be my constitutional obligation. Um, that plan really caught fire under Bernie Sanders um, and this idea of particularly free community college and universal community college. But what our listeners may not, your listeners may not understand is Arizona's constitution. In our state constitution, it reads that public universities should be as, quote, nearly free as possible. 
that is really progressive um, for a state that a lot of folks don't look at as progressive policy. And so from my perspective, when I raise my right hand to defend and uphold the Constitution of Arizona as, uh, as governor, it includes returning back to our core mission as a state, which is having public universities as nearly free as possible. And, you know, it was written that way because I think our framers in our state understood that access to higher education is that great equalizer that can make a difference for students. It's also a fantastic way to focus on economic development um, because investing in human capital is the best investment that any state can make. And so I am on record and I am pushing a threefold plan in Arizona. And it starts with Universal Community College. And I started at the community college level because um, that is where most of our students begin their higher education journey. About two-thirds of Arizona students that move on to higher education start at the community college. By the way, Arizona has zeroed out state dollars to community colleges, which I think is a really short-sighted decision. For me, um, community colleges continue to be that place where students not only can have a, an affordable way to pay for college if they move on to the university, but also it is a fantastic job builder in high-end uh, manufacturing, healthcare, for example. In rural Arizona, the community colleges can develop entirely new, entire new industries with a focus on, um, on career and technical education uh, certificates. You know, second in Arizona, we need to keep our best and brightest here. The battle in the future across states and across country is going to, across countries is going to be intellectual capital, and I want our best and brightest to stay in Arizona. And then last, um, I'm going to move toward what is our constitutional requirement in Arizona, and that is to have uh, education, public uh, universities as nearly free as possible. Because when you do that, you have young people that graduate without the burden of student debt. They can participate in the economy right away, buy a house, buy a car, or start a business. And I think the sooner we get um, our best and brightest, um, our, our most uh, motivated, ready to do that, I think the better off we're going to be as a state. So could you tell us more about not only how you hope to keep millennials in your state, but how you hope to mobilize them for your campaign this year? That's a great question. You know, I want to start out by just having uh, uh, sort of an understanding of how I, I kind of see this and the, the hope and the inspiration that I get when I talk with millennials. Many of them are sitting across from me or uh, in classrooms in my classroom at, uh, at, at Arizona State. And so the, the real privilege of spending a lot of time um, talking and reading and understanding their ideas. And in just about uh, in a lot of what they say and a lot of what they write and a lot of what they aspire to, millennials have a concrete understanding of what it means to disrupt a system. It is real for them. It is concrete. They've seen it in their lives. They've seen the power of disrupting traditional hierarchies and and organizations and systems and how in the end it benefits everyone when we democratize um, areas that for long for too long have been sort of segregated for just a few. And what's most exciting is they're not afraid to disrupt. Their ideas are big um, and part of my job as an educator is to give them the skills to go out and make it happen. And so in Arizona and across the country, um, the one area where millennials can disrupt, I think, the system fundamentally, not just for today, but long term, is voting. 
And it's pretty simple. You know, um, it's when millennials come out and vote, politicians are going to pay attention to them. There's not a lot of rocket science to running a campaign. You go to the people who you think are going to vote or you want to come out to vote. And when they come out, you make sure you serve them. Um, unfortunately, for example, I've, I've, do, I've done a number of, of um, sessions at community colleges or here at the university, and I have students in the audience, uh, college students, and I ask them, you know, just yes or no, did, how many of you voted? And uh, percentage-wise, it's about 25 to 30 percent. And what I tell them is when that gets to 80 or 90 percent, that's when your ideas are going to make it to the front. And it is that straightforward. Let's get that up to 80%. Let's get that up uh, higher. And when you do that, politicians will be here and they will listen. And I think they're going to be uh, a little uh, taken by what they hear because they're going to hear ideas that aren't necessarily constricted to how we're seeing the world today, the parameters that historic institutions uh, have put around ideas. And I look forward to motivating that voice I look forward to empowering that voice as governor by having um, young folks at the table at every, in every major decision our state, our state makes. And for me, what I believe uh, we can offer is an investment, an investment in millennials, in their ideas, and in their future. And it comes down to education, which is very important, but it also comes down to um, uh, entrepreneurship and encouraging millennials to go out and be creative, solve problems, um, and to turn those into businesses, nonprofits, organizations that start in Arizona, that build in Arizona, and that I hope continue to stay here. I'm glad you use the term disrupt because that's something most politicians don't understand. And that's so key to millennial activism from Black Lives Matter to Occupy. Right now, perhaps the most relevant example is Occupy ICE. And what we're seeing right now as the biggest impediment, just as we saw in other Occupy movements, Occupy Wall Street particularly, is the breakup of these encampments, of these movement spaces by law enforcement. How would you as governor work to support black and brown activists doing this disruptive work? Well, let me start just a second and, and just mention uh, ICE. Um, and in Arizona and across the country, we are in a period of historic cruelties. We're going to look back on what's happening, particularly the separation of children from their parents and the abuse that is happening in detention facilities, even here in Arizona, was a really dark, uh, star, dark period in our history and in our in our immigration policy. And now, I am I am standing absolutely firm on that. We've had just had last week a six-year-old girl sexually assaulted in a state licensed facility, and our governor was complicit. He was silent. You know, to me, uh, we need to stand up and remind. Uh, the America, that our values, the values that I served in the military to protect, are values that are focused on three important things, and that is security. Yes, we certainly need security. I don't think anybody's arguing against that. But second, we need lawful entry for those ready to contribute to the United States. It is immigrant in intellect and, and labor and that has built our country in so many ways, and it continues to be a strength. But third, I believe as a country, we have, an, uh, as a country as fortunate as the United States has long been, to continue to be a place of refuge for those most in need. That's our fundamental values, and we've lost sight of those values. And as governor, as governor of a border state, I look forward to 
being a voice um, on this issue that has a bird's eye view so that we can get back to those values. With respect to activism, uh, you know what you do, and again, this goes back to not being a, stay, a sage on the stage, it is a guide on the side. I am heartened and I am excited when I see young activists involved in our campaign. It, it tells me that we're doing the right thing. It tells me that we are communicating with the segment of Arizona that not only do I believe has the numbers, do I know has the numbers to change Arizona, but has the belief system and the hope that they can. And so part of what you do is you stand up and support the efforts in which they are working hard to achieve. With that, I am not afraid and have been very clear uh, to say that black lives matter. And I, and I say that, um, and it's not at the expense of anybody else's life mattering, but um, when I hear that phrase, what I'm hearing is I'm hearing a community that is crying out to remind us of their humanity. I'm hearing of a community that wants uh, to, you to hear their stories and understand their life circumstances and to continue to build trust in their story and in the direction they want to see their communities go. Uh, I, I got to thank young people for making politicians talk about gun violence, for example, because without, without young people standing up, without millennials standing up and making this an issue, I think that most politicians, given how divisive this issue is, given how tough this issue is, would rather sit back and not talk about it, but they have made us talk about it, and I give them credit at every turn for doing that. And likewise, um, if you look at women who have been really leading the charge here in uh, across America, by the way, it is inspiring to see young women ready to lead and done, sick and tired of standing up and hoping that their voices are heard, um, really going out and making sure their voices are heard by being vocal and by being visible. And I look forward to continuing to partner with their efforts um, and to make sure that those voices find their way into leadership positions in Arizona so that that activism turns into action and eventually into policies that make a difference in people's lives. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. 
David, you are notably one of the few candidates for governor who has called for the abolition of ICE. Your state has a very dark history, actually pretty recent history, going on to this day, as you mentioned, in terms of anti-immigrant policy. Could you tell us about what you have seen over the years? Let me tell you the very first time I remember confronting the immigration issue. And it is such a stark memory for me. I could take you back to the exact place at Lindbergh Elementary School. I was in fifth grade, and I was standing behind uh, my friend, Allison. I, I remember her last name. We'll, we'll keep it off the record. And I remember talking to her and just playing around. And she turned to me, and I, I, I still remember, I could see her face today. And she told me we could not be friends because she was a cowgirl and I was a wetback. And I was taken back by that. And it was probably the first time I realized that we had an us and them out there in the world and that all the kids in my class didn't see us all in the same way I did. And so growing up in Arizona, when your last name is Garcia, this is an issue that confronts you all the time, whether you, um, you, know, whether you want it to or not, because of the really anti-Latino, anti-immigrant, rhetoric and policies that have unfortunately scarred and defined our state. And so from my perspective, um, as, you, as we talk about uh, ICE, look, we are in a circumstance, like I mentioned, where we're seeing historic cruelty and we need to replace ICE with an immigration system that includes enforcement that matches our American values. And um, in my, in, in, as, a, as governor, I'm going to be strong on this issue because it isn't just the, it, uh, the rec uh, recent immigrants that are impacted by this. I, I think that that rhetoric moves to, be, to even fourth-generation um, Latinos like myself. And the broader conversation, in my, in my opinion, is the extent to which we are going to or not continue to welcome the contributions and the support and the tremendous intellectual power um, of our Latino population. It's one of the reasons why I stand behind our dreamers. I believe our dreamers in, are as, as American as I am. And as governor, I'm going to fight very hard to make sure they can study and contribute and work to uh, build the only state and country that they know. And I look forward to being on the right side of history on that one. But, you know, I think it's also a mobilization tool, too. Um, one question I get in Arizona here is, well, Latinos don't come out and vote. We're called the sleeping giant. But, you know, having been here my entire life, we have been asked, Latinos, to play defense over and over and over again. We've been asked to come out and vote against bad policies. Vote against uh, 10, Senate Bill 107, those who put in place 10, Senate Bill 1070. Vote against Joel Pyle. Vote against Russell Pierce. For a first time in a long time, I believe that our campaign represents something that not only Latinos, but Arizonans can vote for. And I think that that inspirational message is going to um, reach people, in, increase voter turnout, and put us on a track here where we can start looking at the border and our, our, our state as a border state as an asset instead of a liability. We're a state that benefits from tremendous cultural diversity because of where we're located, language diversity, and the ability to have multiple people and cultures and stories. And it's not just Latinos in Arizona. It's the African-American contributions, Asian-American contributions, 
And I just find that we're a better state when we recognize and continue to welcome those contributions. So I think what this really gets down to is the criminalization of both migration and people of color. As you know, those two things are very much interconnected. Quite simply, undocumented status doesn't have to be criminalized, just like poverty and drug addiction don't have to be criminalized. Those are all choices that the government has made for the people, has made to subjugate people of color and maintain a powerful white majority. How would you as governor work to dismantle that, to dismantle the prison industrial complex in your state and ensure that a criminal justice system is focused on justice? Well, uh, I mean, go back and just tell you, I come from a neighborhood where um, some, some, of my, some of my buddies growing up, caught, for example, with relatively minor possession, have seen their lives really change and spend a decade plus digging out of um, what I would consider, and I think they would too, just knuckleheads mistakes when they were, when they were young. And it's not a productive um, policy uh, direction from an economic perspective, and it's not productive from a human rights perspective. And so, for me, uh, we need to, as a, as a state, uh, have a voice that is from our communities, that understands the impact of policies on our communities, our most vulnerable communities in Arizona, and is ready to stand up and fight for those communities. On immigration, I'm going to stop politicizing this issue. That's, we're going to pull troops away from the border that right now I think are not a good use of public resources. As I said, we are going to fight for dreamers because I want to be on the right side of, of history in that case and, and can just reframe um, our geographic location as the asset that it is with respect to culture and language and, con and contributions. Um, well, likewise, I think we've got to take a very long look at how we're thinking about in criminal justice in Arizona. Arizona has one of the highest criminal, highest incarceration rates in the country. Sixth in the country in, in incarceration rates. And we're simply locking up too many, too many people for um, reasons that we're not making good decisions when we do. Most, actually about half of the 48% of, of, of uh, people in prison are there for a nonviolent offense. And we can and we should find better ways to address um, to to address those issues than locking people up. I mean, I'm a big fan of rehabilitation. Um, I'm a big fan of making sure that um, folks have access to substance abuse treatment so that they can get themselves righted. Um, we've got to also think about changing bail reform in Arizona. Seven out of ten people in jail in our state are there at pre-trial. They're there because they just are too poor to post bail. And again, that is not a productive way to uh, carry out public policy from an economic standpoint and also from a human rights standpoint. And so, you know, we're going to stand very, very firm on this. And really, the tough approach that has been kind of the rhetoric to date, when you peel that back a little bit and start looking at the impact, it, it falls apart. And it falls apart because that rhetoric has turned into policies that are having a real impact, negative impact on people's lives. Um, and we're going to come at this from a very different perspective as governor. So what advice would you give to young people of color listening to this podcast who want to run for office but are worried about the racism they'll face? Uh, wow, what advice would I give? 
Well, you know what? Um, I wouldn't worry about the racism. There's only one way that we are going to overcome racism, and that is to take it head on. I have gotten the question and the comment a number of times. You must be crazy to run in Arizona with your last name. But the way I see it is we are not going to hear the true voice of our state. We're not going to hear the true voice of our country until we have more leaders with last names like mine. And it's not just Latino last names. It is representation with respect to gender identity, representation with respect to uh, other races and cultures, African-Americans, um, religions, gender. And there is only one way to address that, and that is to take it head on. And I think when folks, I think when, when people out there are listening, you're going to be surprised. You're going to be surprised that when you stand firm on your position, when you are clear about who you are, when you tell your story, and you may not think your story is interesting, but let me, let me just reinforce, it is. It is interesting to people because what you're going to find is your story is likely not alone. There are other people that are going to say, you know what, I, I, I can identify. I was the first in my family to go to college, for example. Yeah, I came from a neighborhood like that. And you are going to get solace and strength in their numbers as they empower you, and, and, and much like they do to me, um, encourage you to keep going. And so get out there. You've got, we've got to address this issue with racism head on. And the one piece of advice, and I've been I've been following this advice since I was, uh, I think I learned this in camp. I must have been 12 or 13. And it was pretty straightforward for me. And, it, and the advice goes like this. Uh, to G-E-T, you have to A-S-K. It sounds simple, but once you get out there, and this, this goes to running for office. This goes to applying to college. This goes to getting a scholarship. This goes to getting help when you need it. All you've got to do is get out there and ask. And I think you're going to be surprised at how many people say yes. And if somebody says no, well, you move on to the next person. But I think that if that was a discipline among anybody who wanted to see their dreams become a reality, I believe they're going to be pleasantly surprised at how quickly it can happen. And lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online? Yeah, uh, thank you for that. We are at DG, the number four, az.com. You can also find us at DG4AZ on social media as well. Pay attention to what's coming, going on here. We are in a position to win in Arizona. Our campaign, powered by almost 5,000 people that are out there across the state working hard, our campaign is leading right now our incumbent governor. And imagine this for a second. Imagine the ripple effect. Imagine the message it's going to send to the rest of the country when a place like Arizona, a place that really has, unfortunately, its reputation is, is around a lot of anti-Latino, a lot of racist policies. But imagine you know, what we're going to tell, what we're going to, the message we're going to send to the rest of the country when, come November 7th, we've elected a guy named Garcia, governor of Arizona. We here at Millennial Politics are very much ready to see that. And we thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and telling our listeners about your candidacy. Thank you. Much appreciated. I look forward to coming back. Of course. Now, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast for more great interviews with folks like David. Thanks for listening.